So let's talk about your next patient. So the next patient is a 62-year-old male who I actually knew as I treated his brother for a different disease who was diagnosed in April of 2009 after he presented with severe back pain and was felt to have significant bone involvement of a IgG kappa myeloma with 40% plasma cells in his bone marrow. He had normal metaphasite genetics and by fish had a 1Q amplification trisomy 5 and dilution 13. He was started initially on lenalidomide with bortezomib and dexamethasone with a very good partial remission and underwent an autologous transplantation in December of 2009. He relapsed in March of 2011, initially with an asymptomatic rise in his monoclonal IgG protein, and he was watched initially without uh, specific therapy, but then progressively increased, and by November 2011, he was restarted on his initial regimen with lenalidomide, bortezomib, and dexamethasone, and actually underwent a second autologous transplant in April of 2012, followed by maintenance lenalidomide. Around May of 2013, he had a progressive rise in his IgG protein and then developed a new soft tissue plasma cytoma, which was stained for amyloid. He also developed uh, onset of new bone disease and he required a short course of radiation to the sternal area for significant pain that he was having. And he was then started on pomalidomide at four milligrams daily, day one to 14, with bortezomib given on a standard day one for 811 schedule subcutaneously with dexamethasone on the day of his bortezomib injections. He's now been on that treatment with a good response to therapy. He has had good control of his disease with his M-spike at a very low level currently, although he has had some progressive side effects from therapy, predominantly steroid-related with muscle weakness and weight gain. And he does have some issues with fatigue and pain that does require narcotics on a regular basis. So any observations or thoughts about this case? So this patient has had two transplants and then most recently has been on a three-drug regimen that requires him to be in the office twice a week and is getting pretty significant doses of dexamethasone as well. And I think that all of those things factored in together have somewhat limited his current quality of life. Now, that's a balance. We've gotten his disease where it needs to be, so I think there's a price to be paid for doing that. But I think at this point, for his own quality of life, what we discussed in the room was really trying to improve his overall quality of life now that he has good disease control. And that may mean significant reductions in dexamethasone dosing, changing to a weekly instead of a twice-weekly dosing schedule of bortezomib, all these kinds of things. Because right now, it sounds like while we fixed his numbers, we haven't fixed him. And I think those are problems that limit his ultimate quality of life. There are oral proteasome inhibitors being developed. Exazomib is one of them. Mm -hmm. So far from what I've seen, looks pretty interesting. Curious about your thoughts. In this man, how much of a difference do you think it would make if you could take an oral proteasome inhibitor? Oh, I think it'd be a huge difference. Now, I don't think it would be all the answer because weight gain and proximal muscle weakness from steroids, I think, are a big issue for him. But just coming into the office less gives patients an opportunity to rebuild their lives a little bit. And I mean, I think I would have done exactly what was done in this patient, but sometimes we have to step back a little bit and say, all right, we've gotten this where we need it to be. Now what can we do to 
to fix the person. What is new in terms of exazomib and other oral proteasome inhibitors? Where are we and are we likely to see this coming into practice? Yeah, so exasimib or MLN9708 has been looked at both in the relapse setting and in the newly diagnosed setting. Appears to be a pretty good replacement for bortezomib in terms of uh, oral boronated proteasome inhibitor. It's currently in phase three clinical trials, so we're going to have to wait for those trials to finish before we get the drug out on the market. But I think it does look very, very promising. And I believe there's an oral formulation of carfilzomib or related to it? That's right. Aprozomib is the drug and it's basically an oral version of the epoxy ketone carfilzomib. It also appears to have good activity. They're working on formulation changes to optimize its delivery. And I think what's curious about aprozomib is that it does seem to have activity in Waldenstrom's as well. And so I think that'll be something that will be of great interest to a lot of patients with other plasma cell disorders. I meant to ask you before, you could fit in with almost any of these cases, in terms of, we talked about people, including this man, who've gotten pomalidomide, other patients who've got carfilzomib. Right now, how do you go about sequencing those two agents in particular? You know, I think in our practice, it really depends on what they've seen most recently and what they're resistant or refractory to. I think that, you know, patients that have seen a lot of proteasome inhibitor-based combinations, I may want to switch classes and think about an image in that situation. Patients that have pretty aggressive disease, rapidly progressive disease, I may want to think about a carfilzomib-based approach. I think it just varies based on what's going on. What's been your experience with pomalidomide, and how often is this issue of oral versus parenteral treatment of myeloma, you know, a big consideration? In my experience with patients, often when they get to multiple relapses of their disease, when they're seeing this, they really want something that works. And I think the vast majority of them will be open to whatever regimen you think is going to help treat their myeloma. And again, I follow the same kind of pattern with whatever they got exposed to most recently, I would try and switch classes. So if they'd been exposed to, you know, a lenalidomide-based or imid-based regimen most recently, I would try go to something like colfizumab. And for most patients, it hasn't been a problem coming into the office even twice a week for their infusions. Seems like most of these patients we're talking about today have gotten a little farther down the road, but as long as we're talking about carfilzomib, Sagar, maybe you can update us on where we are about using carfilzomib up front. We continue to see more data coming out. What do we know about that right now? So there are two trials that have been presented, one from the NCI and the NIH looking at CRD and newly diagnosed myeloma. There's another one that Andres Jakoboviak has published looking at CRD as well. And I think the data looks very, very impressive. There's a high rate of rapid responses, a high rate of stringent CRs after eight cycles of therapy. This is really the topic of the ongoing ECOG trial, which is RVD versus CRD. It's a straight head-to-head comparison. And I think until we have results on that, it's hard to say what the answer is. But certainly, carfilzomib could be used in the induction setting. What is it, like a 10,000-patient trial or something? I think it's 700. And that really is going to be enough to tell the difference? Well, so there's two. There's the induction, and then there's a duration of maintenance question. Mm. So, yes, the statisticians tell me it's okay. Interesting. (laughs) I'm guessing it's going to be a little while before we have that answer. What's the projection? Well, it's opening now. So it's going to be years. And this comes up in oncology a lot. You know, you have a drug that's approved. You know, you start to see data in an earlier setting. Do you wait 
for you know the FDA indication or go earlier. This comes up in breast cancer. It happens all the time. And you know, I don't know. You know, you see the safety data using an upfront setting. I mean, even though you don't have direct comparison, you, you know, pretty striking indirect comparisons. I mean, I'm just kind of curious. Do you really think we need to go through this whole thing with a phase three trial every time we are in this situation? Well, I think the reason that I think we do is that there can be toxicities that one doesn't appreciate in a small, single-center phase two experience. And so I think response rates are certainly great, and they're important endpoints, but you need to know the whole picture of a combination regimen and its impact on a patient. And I think to really assess the toxicity question, you need a large phase three trial. What do you do right now in a patient who presents with, let's say, long-standing peripheral neuropathy, diabetes, et cetera? You still go with bortezomib sub-Q? Well, we do just because that's the regimen we have the greatest experience with. But whereas I might have started with sub-Q one milligram per meter squared, I might be more likely to think about carfilzomib in that patient. So just trying to be a little bit of agent provocateur here. What are your thoughts about this? Have you thought about, you know, possibility of carfilzomib up front? I mean, I know the data looks very promising, but also from a practice perspective, in our practice, we wouldn't be able to use those drugs until someone has become refractory or, you know, not able to tolerate bortezomib or lenalidomide before we can use those drugs outside of a clinical trial.